Hey folks, this is the uh, last episode of season two. And before we get into it, a conversation, I'll just tell you now with Science Mike, I'm super excited to let you hear uh, this conversation. I just wanted to let you know that um, I really appreciate all of you who have been with me on this journey. I felt your support. I have felt you backing this work. I've I've really felt like um, you have been with me on this journey. And I just want to tell you, thank you. And also let you know that um, in the show notes of this episode, there is a link for those of you that want to uh, take another step in your support of this work. There's a Patreon link that you can click on and you can become a financial supporter of this work. And I, again, I'm very thankful to all of you who have asked me how you could support um, this work that we're doing and these conversations that we're having. And this is a way that you can do so. Um, So we are... um, just again, want to say thank you to all of you. And we are about to have listened to, or you're about to listen to, I already had it. <laughs> you're about to listen to a conversation that I had with uh, Science Mike, and it's super cool. I mean, you know, I kind of I kind of nerd out sometimes on stuff. And a couple of years ago, I heard Science Mike talking about spiral dynamics. And those of you that don't know what it is, you're about to find out what it is. And I heard him talking about it and it was the it was the best like explanation of how spiral dynamics works that I had heard. And I'm really interested in the way human beings behave and why we behave those ways and the science and anthropology behind all of the ways that we behave and interact with each other. And spiral dynamics is a way of sort of speaking to and explaining how we all move move and how we think uh, throughout the world. So um, we talk about that and some really interesting other topics, some other really interesting topics. I went all Yoda on you just now. Sorry. All right. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Science Mike, episode 26 of Existential. This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, today I have a really special guest on the podcast. I mean, I guess I say that all the time, so I guess all the guests are special. But today I've got Mike McCarg, uh, who you may know as Science Mike, on the podcast, and I'm really, really excited to get to have this conversation. For those of you who, who may not know, Mike is a author and a speaker. He's also a husband and a father to daughters, and you have a dog. So I, I mean, have a dog. You know, he's he he's uh, what, what kind of dog do you have? A Weimariner, old lady. Uh, a what? A why? You know, I'm not a, a dog Weimar person. So I, don't, I don't know. It's a, <laughs> it's a um, it's a German breed. They're they're uh, they they're pretty famous for uh, as a guy that would dress them up in suits and stuff and take pictures of them. Um, but, yeah. Oh, gotcha. Okay, <laughs> okay. Well, guys, Science Mike is on the podcast, and I, I remember listening to you on the Liturgist podcast not too long ago, and, and my favorite episode of the liturgist podcast was one where you were talking about spiral dynamics. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I was like, after that episode, cause I had heard about spiral dynamics before, but after that episode, I was telling everybody I knew, I was like, Oh dude, spiral dynamics and here's how it works. <laughs> you know? I was doing like a poor man's version of your explanation of it. 
So I, I'm, I'm really curious, though, because I'm fascinated by that whole thing. And I know this was several, several years ago that you talked about mm-hmm. that. But could you just for the existential listeners talk about spiral dynamics and, you know, how that affects our lives and, and what we should think about spiral dynamics? Yeah, uh, gosh, Spiral Dynamics uh, started with the work of somebody named Claire Graves. Um, And then there's a a Spiral Dynamics Institute run by Don Beck, and he kind of took that work farther. And it's a way that uh, is a model for trying to blend psychology and sociology into a more unified understanding of human psychology and behavior. Um, and it's pretty powerful as a tool. I mean, uh, it's used by major brands to communicate, which, you know, yay capitalism, I guess, but I think more, (laughs) more importantly and exciting in the model is, uh, Nelson Mandela used spiral dynamics in his work. So that's a pretty significant, um, endorsement in my mind. And it basically says that as uh, societies grow over time, and it goes back to prehistory, the overall arc of cultures in interesting ways mirrors the development that people go through. And so they, they describe both society and individuals as moving through a series of cognitive containers called V-memes, which are the boundaries around thinking. And they basically say that humans are a special animal because as our consciousness changes, we change our environment so much that our consciousness has to respond to the changes in the environment we produced. And it creates this um, kind of helix-like ladder of human change and growth. Um, And it's good and it's bad. Um, We tend to have uh, increased access to resources, I mean, emotionally and psychologically as we move through these stages, as well as amplify our capacity to do harms to other. So um, it's a, at its heart, it's an attempt to responsibly harness human behavior uh, to increase collaboration and access to resources. And um, I think it's a, good, it's a helpful model. There are some pretty substantive critiques of it out there. Uh, it tends to be very Western-centric, for example. Um, but um, it's a tool, and as a tool, it can be useful. Okay, so so here's what I, I know about it. I know that there's colors, and and you know, I, I was a little, I'm always a little bit like not confused, but I guess in trying to talk about it, it's difficult because there is movement in spiral dynamics, but it's not necessarily, from what I understand, a like. Uh, levels where like you, I was at this level and now I'm here. It's more or less just a, a movement. So how would you describe the movement of it and, and all of the colors and the, it's, could you kind of just take a little bit of time and talk about each, each V meme, I guess, and Absolutely. how, how we move around through them. Sure. Well, I mean, first we got to start with the name spiral dynamics. The spiral is what I just talked about where we become aware we do something as people and it changes the world. And then we have to change in response. And it creates this spiral uh, motion. Um, mm. And then the dynamic mm. part is very important. I think we, yeah, there's so much popularity in th- around things like Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram where people would say, I'm a nine or I'm an ENFJ. And they tend to bring that mentality to spiral dynamics and say, now I'm orange. And the 
that that ignores half of the model, which is that it's dynamic. Spiral Dynamics talks about how your body-brain system responds to the environment moment by moment. And so as I talk about these levels, mm. I want to encourage listeners to not treat this like a personality typing system and figure out your V-meme. Because the way it works is you'll have a V-meme that's like the highest V-meme you've achieved. And you spent a few moments there, maybe a day if you're lucky. And then you have a V-meme that's kind of your go-to and your center. But anybody at any point can go to, to other V-memes as ne necessary for survival. And... Mm. If we start with the basics, that would be beige. Uh, beige is the um, kind of animistic, not pre-animistic. This is like the um, like the base level of human consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. Babies are all about survival, and people in beige are all about survival. So if we went to our earliest ancestors, you would probably uh, anticipate that um, you know they didn't have language, they didn't have farming. Mm -hmm. They were really concerned mm -hmm. with um, just living and in a very right. um, fundamental way. And uh, food, safety, shelter, sex, these are, these are the, the driving energies around um, the beige level of consciousness, which is like, which is fine. Uh, <laughs> that's no big deal. Uh, but as humans did what humans do, we were successful and we learned to mm. communicate and we learned to organize and we learned to plant seeds in the ground and start having some, um, some relative security as a result of that. Um, and it was nice. We enjoyed that. And so beige, uh, which is, um, I'm trying to remember that it's been a while, the archaic stage of human consciousness. Uh, it kind of mm -hmm, moved mm -hmm. on into purple. Uh, and by the way, these colors, they, they, the lore is that uh, Claire Graves was trying to color code these slides and asked a research assistant to do that. And they just picked these colors and they stuck. <laughs> <laughs> so don't overthink. So the there's colors. no like, there's no 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 cosmic sense of like divine ordering to the colors. It's just people have created to sense to it, but it didn't start that way. That's right. Okay, uh, so gotcha. purple, okay. we get this magical mythical stage of uh, consciousness where where the needs change because we realize we plant seeds and sometimes the rains come and sometimes they don't and sometimes our river valley floods mm. if there's too much rain. And other times our crops die if there's not enough. They start to wonder, why does the rain come and why does it not? And we get a magical, mythical stage of consciousness where our values change from basic survival to serving our tribe to placating unseen mm. spirits and to honoring family and ancestors. Uh, and this would be the mm. origins of human society. This is, uh, you know, we're talking kind of river valley stuff here. Um, yeah. And then that, that uh, eventually someone... Uh, realizes that we have warriors and we have shamans and the warriors can actually beat up the shaman. So it might be, oh, shaman, that you uh, can talk to the gods, but I can, I, can, I can beat you up and I deserve that power because I can beat you up. And that takes us to the power ego stage of consciousness uh, where the goal mm. is to dominate, is to win, is to have sexual prowess and virility. Uh, this is like dictators. Um, this is football, this is sports cars, these are all speaking to red, 
And I don't want to like dismiss red mm. because red's important. The first time a toddler says mm -hmm. no, they start creating a sense of individuality. And that's important. We need red. We can't get stuck in red. If we get stuck in red, that's where our government is right now. We have like the prototypical uh, Sproul Dynamic red person in the White House, and that's having pretty significant consequences for global society. So there's nothing wrong mm. with red, but we don't want to live there all the time. It can't just be about mm. winning and the size of your hands. So, so if um, we use red, if we use red as an example, saying that it's like it's not always a bad thing, and, and really with all of these levels, they have their purpose that they serve in society. What would and, and I and I want to get to the rest of them, but because because of the relevance of the time period we live in now, uh, certainly as Americans, what would healthy what would a healthy red stage look like? If there's like a you know, has there ever been a historic time that you could like maybe use an example to say, oh my, this gosh, was a healthy man. stage of red. The American Civil Rights Movement. Hmm. Yeah. What is happening to our people is not okay. Now I'm saying our people quoting there. Right, um, right. But, but the leaders of the Civil Rights Movement said, what is happening to black Americans is not okay. And we are angry about it. But what's important hmm. to note is Martin Luther King or Malcolm X didn't just sit in red. Um, and that's what's, that's what's powerful about Spiral Dynamics. I think being stagnant in any of these V-memes is harmful to personal development and growth and transformation, oh, wow. right? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So what, what you saw with the, the, what brilliant leaders do and what healthy people do is they tap into these different V-memes as needed moment by moment. So if the civil rights movement leaders had only been read, they wouldn't have been able to organize people together. They would have only been able to be angry. You see, for example, the current president does not have like a gift for organizing. He doesn't have a gift for building coalitions. He doesn't have a gift for a lot of these things. Now, he's somewhat lucky that he's got someone like uh, the leader, the majority leader of the Senate, who is a good organizer. But mm -hmm. um, on, on, on its own, red can't actually accomplish a whole lot. You see governments... Uh, countries with red governments, they tend to stagnate and experience economic decline because you get mm -hmm. an entire culture centered around making this red tyrant happy. It doesn't help. Wow. But when wow. red is used to take a stand, when red is used to set a boundary of what is and is not okay, the world is simply a better place because Rosa Parks went to red and said, no. I will mm. not leave this mm. bus seat. But the reason it mm -hmm. worked is because it wasn't just that moment. That moment led to the other V memes working together to create social change and transformation. Oh, that's beautiful. So, okay, so the next V, me v memes after red, we move into what? So it gets pretty, pretty terrible if you're a member of a red society and you're not the strongest <laughs> warrior. It's not a good time. Yeah. And it, yeah. everybody gets tired of getting pushed around. And so they reorganize and they, the shamans kind of bring power back. But now instead of in a purple society, the shaman kind of solely talks to the, the, the unseen forces in the world. We formalize this now. We create structured, organized religions in the blue or traditional stage of consciousness. And here we create order in society by following a sacred text. So, hey big, strong warrior, you might be really powerful, but we all believe God is more powerful. And if you're upsetting God, 
then we're going to collectively stop you from doing that because you might be stronger than me, but you're not stronger than a thousand of us. And this is where we start to see codified uh, rules of law that starts with religion but can move secular. And in blue societies, obedience to these sacred texts create future rewards. This is where notions of the afterlife become important. And then meaning, purpose, and certainty come from having one collective story. And blue is really hierarchical. So in red, you have like, I'm most powerful, I'm in charge, everyone's underneath me. And in blue, you start to organize complicated social hierarchies with divided responsibilities. And you see this in the monarchy. Um, and I, you might think monarchies are red. They're not. Uh, hmm. a, a monarch tends to derive their power from a sacred text and also be constrained by it. And monarchs oh, also wow. start creating divisions of labor that make their societies uh, more effective. Now, I'm not saying flourishing, but I'm saying in terms of um, how did a tiny island in the North Atlantic conquer the entire world? The organizational power of mm. blue. Uh, you see this in modern evangelicalism in a big way, the strong hierarchy where the right and wrong is determined by the book and only by the book, that book being the Bible. And, um, you know, blue, we tend to, we tend to push it around for good reasons. It's not all bad. Uh, blue, uh, cultures and organizations that have a blue center of gravity are fast acting. So if you ask mm. a progressive coalition of one of the few memes we'll talk about in a minute to uh, organize and create um, a fundraising project, you'll find they're actually much less effective than blue because they all have a very individualistic mindset and they want to honor a lot of different perspectives. We'll talk about it in a second. Whereas blue, if the person in charge references the text properly, everyone immediately complies and they move together in collective action. And so you tend to see, for example, following natural disasters, the first people on the ground are religious conservatives because they can so hmm. rapidly organize to action without having to build coalitions hmm. because they have hierarchy, um, which is kind of wild as someone who personally right now, I have a pretty complex relationship with conservative religion to note that in some ways, organizationally, right. it has advantages. But at some point in a society, uh, people go, wait a second, why is that book true? What makes it true? Well, it mm -hmm. says it's true. Okay, mm -hmm. what if I wrote a book that said it was true? Would that make it true? <laughs> and, uh, right, it's a, it's, a, it's a big shift, and that creates the modern rational stage of consciousness, which is often called orange. And orange is all about supporting your ideas with data and evidence. We saw this in a big way with the Enlightenment. Mm. Competition is allowed at this stage, but via merit. What ideas are best? What models are best? Can you prove it? Then it should win. We see this kind of in the framing of the American system of government, wherein for the first time, a government tried to justify itself in its founding documents. Where is the power coming from? It's coming from we the people. Now, that was an incomplete picture. We the people was white landowning men at this time. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. so I don't, don't hear me as like saying some kind of blanket right. American exceptionalism. But what I'm saying is in terms of V-meme for the first time, we're not saying we are ordained by God. We are saying we, the people ourselves, are forming gov government, and that's where it comes from. And we're going to put in these founding governments documents that if our government fails to do what's supposed to do, you should overthrow us, which is a very wild idea 
in government. <laughs> um, Google is a very orange organization. Hmm. Everything they do is data-driven. Everything they do is based on analytics. If you walk in with an opinion at Google and have no data, you will get laughed out of a meeting. And, hmm. you know, this, this approach to the world enables science. We can put people in space. We can, we can cure diseases. We do a lot of things with orange uh, that are very, very powerful and useful. Uh, and because orange teaches you to ask questions, if you follow it, it inevitably starts to tear itself apart. Hmm. because you start to realize there's other stories. And so Orange lets you build a stock market and create a lot of wealth. But it also, because you've committed yourself to inquiry, leads you to see that the effect of that wealth isn't the same on everyone, and that's in the data. Hmm. And it starts opening your eyes to the fact that other people have experiences that aren't you or the group that you came from. And that leads to what we call the world stage of consciousness or the green stage, where we learn that every person's stories are important. Every person's stories matter. Um, it means that if you are a white person who's been orange and you've been having the scientific enlightenment thinking and you follow the inquiry, then you start to realize, whoa, the outcomes of our justice system aren't the same for people of right. different racial or ethnic backgrounds. Right. Right. And maybe for me to learn more, I need more than data. I might need their actual experiences. And because you start to realize that there's so many systemic problems, uh, you begin to abandon the hierarchy and organization of blue and orange and, and get really antithetical to it. So green organizations are like, we don't have a CEO. Everybody has the same size office or no office at all. We work on a co-op collective and we protect the earth and we honor all stories and and, you know, and we can't organize anything. So what happens at Green, Occupy Wall Street is a, is a perfect mm. Green movement because everyone says, we're going to go Occupy Wall Street. We're going to take down the system. And they all go down there and nobody's in charge. And the media shows up and they say, who can we talk to? And everybody's like, I don't know. We're all just together. Talk to Ted. And Ted is like a white guy with dreadlocks and, a, and kicking a hacky sack. And the media person says, what do you want? And they go, this, this society is unacceptable. The way wealth is distributed in this country is immoral. We are the 99%. And the media person is like, wow, that's really effective. What are your demands? We got to tear this system down. Great. So what do you want to, what do you want to tell the people in power? It's not okay. No. Yeah. Okay. And there's no actual <laughs> deliverable. And What's fascinating about this to me, kind of as I as alluded to earlier, organizations get stagnant and stuck when they stay in one place in, in a V-Main. And real change and real transformation is when the dynamic nature is, is seen, but also like encouraged. So the green level should teach us that all perspectives matters. And in fact, Martin Luther King was super green, right? He started his work mm -hmm. in black liberation, but toward the end of his life, he was moving into building a cross-racial coalition of poor people, which, let's be honest, scared the absolute shit out of people in power. But Martin Luther King, you know, he had this green awareness of all perspectives and all stories, but then he leaned into orange and he had a, a he organized and, and looked at what practices worked and what practices didn't and made changes over time and adapted yeah. his strategies. Uh, yeah. And then 
he he appealed to blue by he's a reverend and he he mm-hmm. talks to sacred mm-hmm. text which not only activated communities of color that he's a part of but also started targeting the yeah. core values of the people on the other side of this issue who heard their sacred scriptures being quoted against their behavior which mm. over time led to a transformation how white america approached people of color and then yeah. he hit a red level at that red level he would stare down the president of the United States and say, if you do not meet our demands, we will be marching across this bridge. And there Mm. will be on television, the brutality of white police officers beating innocent black women and children. And Mm. it will be on you, Mr. President. That's a red thing. And then going all the way down to purple, there was this notion of honoring those who came before us, our ancestors, going all the way back to the people who were brought here from Africa and and revitalizing and reconnecting black Americans' notion that we came from somewhere and that Mm. somewhere was before we were stolen from our homes. Mm. And then at the end of the day, you know, I've read many biographies about Dr. King and many accounts of his life. He was okay when he was tired and stressed, leaning into beige and taking care of his body and taking mm. care of his physical and emotional needs in order to facilitate the larger work that he was a part of. The power of spiral dynamics is not naming one V-meme as better than the other or one is higher or lower, but realizing they all have a place in our lives and a mm. role for us to play as we try to become people who are effective agents of both personal transformation and collective transformation in our world. Man, that's so good. It's so deep. Now, you you alluded to this earlier when you talked about the difference between, like, let's say, an Enneagram, which is all the rage right now. Everyone's, you know, running around talking about what their numbers are, and spiral dynamics. So in the Enneagram, there is some similar language around a healthy, you know, seven, for instance, when and when I'm most healthy, I move to, I think, a one or something, whatever, whatever the science is behind it. Um, it in what ways would you say... Um, Enneagram is similar. Similar, in what ways would you say that they're not? They're they are completely separate kinds of ways of evaluating human behavior and how we interact with each other. Well, I mean, the Enneagram is a personal psychological development tool to understand your life and your relationships. Spiral dynamics um, is more about how you participate in systems and how people mm-hmm. organize okay. and aggregate into systems. One thing they share in common is there's healthy and unhealthy uh, expressions of all the numbers of the Enneagram. In Spiral Dynamics, the model includes healthy and unhealthy expressions of each V-meme. So that's baked into the model. So uh, kind of as I alluded to with red, you can be a healthy expression of red, Rosa Parks saying, I'm not going to give up this bus seat. Or you Mm -hmm. can be an unhealthy expression, which is Donald Trump saying, I'm going to expunge everyone (laughs) in the government who's not loyal to me. Uh, and so those yeah. are both red, yeah. but they obviously have very, very different impacts on people in the world. It's amazing. It's amazing. So you um, you, you go by science, Mike. I, I meant to ask you this earlier. Like, and I think I've heard you do some talks about this, but what what made the science, Mike, thing stick with you? <laughs> I have no idea. I love science. Um, so here's here's the real origin. I was at a party in Denver 
And I was about three beers in. And when I get three <laughs> beers in, my friends know you can ask me science questions and I will just... You can cue them up oh, as man. many as you okay. want. And it's, it's kind of a party trick. Yes, science! And a friend of mine, uh, Sarah Heath... What is the beer of choice? Here, if, what, what's, what's the beer of choice? What's, what's your go-to beer? I don't hardly drink beer anymore. Um, okay. Back then, I was doing a lot of IPAs. Now, I, okay. it gives me a headache. Just as soon as I drink the first beer, I had a brain injury. And stuff uh, it's okay. not a hangover. Okay. It's like I drink beer and four minutes later, I'm like, ah, uh, I can't even oh, finish man. a beer. But um, so I was, I was, you know, Sarah said, look at Science Mike wowing the crowd. And several people laughed. And um, both Rob Bell and Michael Gunger were at that party. And they both went, ah, Science Mike. And started calling me Science Mike publicly. And then it just stuck. <laughs> just stuck. Um, okay. So it's just it's just kind of a thing that happened. It it feels a little ridiculous to me as a college dropout to be called Science Mike. Um, <laughs> but it is what it is. But well, well, I want to I want to read something then from your website. And by the way, I mean if Rob Bell and Michael Gunger start calling you anything, I, I imagine that that that's going to stick for for a little while. <laughs> well, then guys. Pete Holmes got involved, um, and between the three of them, it was pretty much. It was stuck. There you go. Yeah, it was. It was all. It was all a wrap after that. But on your website, you say something I thought was so fascinating. You said, "I've recently learned that I have autism and narcolepsy, and I'm in the middle of coming to terms with identifying as a disabled person, all while working in the public eye. I'm a white man learning to live in the world in a way that helps people who aren't white men feel safe and included. Want to know more?" Um, and my answer to that question, want to know more, is yes, <laughs> I do want to know more. Like what that seems like such a profound story and such a big life experience. And it's for for you to put that on your website. Tells, at least spoke to me that like it's front facing for you, and it's something that you want to say to the world. And through that vulnerability, you have something to say. So. Uh, yeah, I do, I would like to know more. Where did that where did that statement come from? Why was it so important for you to make sure that the world saw that and knew that about you? Whiteness is awful. It's just yeah, awful. That's true, and it's yeah, worse. Yeah. It's worse for the further you get from being straight, white, and male, the worse whiteness is for you. Um, mm. But it's not. It's not mm. good for straight white men. Even it's bad for everybody. Mm. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I have a, I have a strange perspective as a child, I was bullied and the only, um, children who were kind to me in elementary school were black children. Um, and, and so they would play with me on the playground and not beat me up or make fun of me. And uh, I had an experience in middle school where, uh, some white bullies were brutalizing me and a, a, a black child intervened and, and defended me. Um, wow. His name was Nate and he, he had, uh, was economically disadvantaged and he had been held back several times. So he was um, quite physically larger than everyone else at school. And he <clears throat> stopped me in the hall one day. I, I uh, tried to get as many hall passes as I could to just get away from other kids and I was doing the slow walk from the bathroom back to class, and it was just me and Nate in the hallway. And he said, um, hey, boy, you prejudice? 
And mm. uh, I said, uh, prejudice is a byproduct of weak minds. And he said, um, so are you prejudiced? And I said, uh, no, I am not. Um, and because of my elementary school experiences in middle school, I'd been uh, reading a lot about the civil rights movement. Um, and at that point, I was like what I'd call a colorblind white person. So I thought like we'd fixed mm -hmm. racial mm -hmm. injustice in America. Um, yeah. And uh, but I wanted to know how we got to this place so that I could make sure that if we started to fall back, I could be a part of the solution. I wanted to make sure that I was the kind of person who, if I found myself in the middle of a civil rights movement, would not be one of the people in a photograph smiling at a lynching, but one who was seen mm. in solidarity with those in need. And so I was doing the research as a middle schooler. And uh, so when I said, no, I'm not prejudiced. Um, and he said, all right, I believe you. And that was it. He kept walking. I kept walking. And then about two weeks later, I was on the playground and kid had his knees on my chest, um, you know, really, really just making me miserable. And all of a sudden he was gone. This child was gone off my chest. And in fact, as I looked up, he was lying on the ground several feet away and Nate was standing over him. And Nate said, uh, if you mess with him, you mess with me. And then pointed to all mm. the kids who bullied me. And um, I also don't know that I've ever told this story publicly. Um, and uh, my whole life changed after that. Because suddenly, I wasn't yeah. accepted among my white peers, but I wasn't actively brutalized every day. And so what I started mm. doing was shadowing Nate. I just followed Nate around everywhere he went. And I wouldn't <laughs> I say that I was like, um, I wasn't like, uh, you can probably hear in my voice and my mannerisms, I definitely code as white. Um, mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that I like became a participant in black culture, but it was uh, Nate and his friends were like my refuge and my safety. Mm. And, um, mm. and that was just like a good experience for me. And there's, there's a lot of stories. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to go through all that, but I, I want to, I want you to know that there's <laughs> not some, I'm not like some morally superior person to other people. I just had a formative experience as a child mm. that made me over time start questioning whiteness. So as I started to see Oh, that's a, a, another inflection point. Here I am identifying as someone who's, who's very uh, informed and educated on matters of race. And on the Liturgist podcast, we released an episode about LGBTQ theology mm. with only white voices on it. There's no people of color on mm. it. And there was immediate pushback on Twitter from queer people of color who are Christians being like, hey, what yeah, the heck yeah. are you doing? Yeah. And I was like shocked because I was like, well, I did this thing like trying to help and now you're mad at me and that feels mm. bad and I don't like people to be mad at me. And so I felt very defensive because I felt ashamed. And then, um, so I tried to like explain why we went through this and trying to be receptive, but also explain like production deadlines and it's who we knew and it, that's, it's only getting worse and worse the more I talk. <laughs> and so, uh, 
like uh, for good reason, right? But I'm feeling more and more defensive. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I decide uh, I'm just going to stop defending myself. I'm going to start grieving. I'm going to start going to therapy. Mm -hmm. And all these people mm -hmm. who have critiqued me today, I'm going to follow them on Twitter. I'm just going to listen. I'm not going to tweet them. I'm just going to listen to what they have to say. And that began a process in my life where I realized my colorblind perspective of I don't see color erases all the real ways in which my life is different because of the color of my skin and because of my gender presentation and because of my perceived ability mm. and because of my perceived straightness from other people in society. There is not only experiences and anecdotes, there's data driving, there's dramatic differences. And um, I couldn't honor what Nate did in my life and continue to implicitly reinforce systems of white supremacy. That was, wow. it's not, I, I can't do it. Um, and frankly, uh, as a bullied person who understands what it's like to suffer at the hands of others, I can't stand by when harm is done to other people and do nothing because mm. so many people did that to me. Mm. And so as I've become aware of the issue, I've devoted the last several years of my life to reorganizing uh, what I read. I, I, mm. I try to make a majority of what I read be written by people of color and queer people and women of color and disabled people, both nonfiction and fiction to start retraining the lens with which I view the world. And wow. then I've tried to participate meaningfully in relationship with people who've invited me to at different intersections of identity and simply believe what they tell me mm. and try to uh, think of ways in which I, as a white male public figure with a majority white audience, can participate in the process of universal liberation in a meaningful and sincere wow. way. Wow, Mike, that's that is um, so, so big. Such a huge statement. First of all, I want to say thank you for offering that gift to us of sharing um, such an, an intimate personal story. I mean, you know, and the effects that it has had on you and is still having on you are so evident and so profound. Um, it's just, man, I just really appreciate that, that, that you shared that story with us. It's a gift to all of us who are listening. And you, I want to ask, because you talked about listening and believing, and there are so many cisgendered white men um, who are afraid of those two things, of listening and believing, because they are, what I hear them saying is they're afraid of being taken advantage of. They're afraid of the kind of world we live in when they are um, positioned in a, in, a, in a space that makes them almost guilty just for being white, straight, and male. What, what do you say to that? What, what, what gives you, beyond just you know, your, your story, like how do you find this strength or the courage to go, I am going to listen and believe, and we'll go from there? Science. Hmm. Um. The defensiveness is not cognitive. Our brains are roughly 
This is a gross oversimplification, but it's very useful, this oversimplification, so I'd like to offer it in that spirit. You can think of our brains as having three layers. And I talk about in my next book that these three layers uh, are roughly a crocodile, a puppy, and a person. Hmm. And um, we think that the person, the outer layer of the brain, runs the show because it's so correlated with our daily experiences. But when you look at the data, it's actually the puppy and the crocodile that have the most influence. So if we're in a, a daily life situation, let's say that I'm in line at the grocery store and someone gets in front of me without asking in that line of the grocery store, the first part of my brain that gets to respond is the crocodile. And the crocodile experiences a territorial intrusion and wants to lash out in defense. And it's fast. The crocodile is faster than the rest of the brain. Mm. But right before I can reach out and physically grab this person and shout at them, the puppy, the emotional brain, the next layer up goes, but what if they're a friend? Mm. right? Let's check if it's a friend first, because social belonging matters to me. I'm a social animal. And then the crocodile says, okay, I wait. And then the puppy says, but if you're right, if that's not a friend, I agree, grr, let's get them. And then finally, from its perch way up in the brain with the slowest and most dense neurons, the neocortex, our most human part of the brain goes, and there's laws and there's social standing and what's the philosophical implication? This person might be late for an appointment. Let's get more information before we proceed. Fundamentally, these three layers of the brain ask different questions. The crocodile asks, am I safe? The puppy asks, do I belong? And the person asks, what does this mean? And when we have conversations about race and racism as white people, we try to have that conversation at the person level and pretend that the puppy and the crocodile aren't involved. But what wow. happens neuromechanically is when a person of color raises an issue of race and racism, the puppy goes, if that's true, I don't belong and I'm not safe because I'm complicit in this system. And so they get defensive. And now the brain, the person part of the brain, because white people are trained to be unaware of their feelings and their bodies, we're socialized for that. They don't know what's happening under the hood. So now they create a rational justification to protect their feelings. The objective wow. lens is not an enlightenment tool. The objective lens white people have is a means of getting fundamentally empathetic animals like humans to participate in a dehumanizing system. The objective lens <laughs> is designed to keep white people away from their feelings because if white people have access to their feelings, they will behave exactly like me, right? Mm. They won't participate. Mm. Once your empathy is awakened, you go, oh, my God. If someone locked mm. my family in a cage, if white children were locked in cages, white people would march on the Capitol with guns. Yes. And so the, the trick here, my work, the reason I approach things this way, science-based, and the reason I not only had this conversation myself, but I'm trying to invite other white people into it is that science has shown me this is a brain problem. And so my wow. job as a white person who's aware of justice issues, it is unfair for the people impacted by the systems that privilege my identity to have to do this work. Here's why. You can offer education and advocacy, Corey, and you do a good job of it. But the emotional labor for you 
to tell a white person they are safe and belong so that they can then receive information is inhumane. It is the job of white people who get it to have the tough first conversations, which are, you are safe with me and you do belong, even though right now you're an unconscious white supremacist. But I'm going to be, I'm going to guarantee to you that you're safe with me and you belong with me so that as your brain is assured of those two things, we can get to a third level, which is what does white supremacy mean for you and I in the world? Dang. Wow, man. That is, that is worth the price of admission. That's so, so good. I can't wait to read this book now. And now the book's coming out soon. It's, it's, called, it's called You're a Miracle, and there's some, some subtitles there. So I wasn't sure which was the title. You know, if, if all of that was one big title, like Michael Scott's book about, you know, somehow I manage. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's a lot of words. You know? <laughs> the title of the book is You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. And those, oh, those yeah. two pieces are very important. I want everyone to know that, in fact, you are, yes, even you straight white men are miracles in the world, unequal in all of the universe, and you're a pain in the ass to yourself and other people. And that's one thing that unites all of human, humanity together, uh, is at times we are beautiful mysteries, and at other times we are really difficult for people to deal with, including ourselves. And the book is about... Mm exploring that mystery in a way that facilitates personal growth and development. Because here's the thing, as a white person who's in the middle of this transition of one, getting in touch with the ways that I'm marginalized, which you really are, are culturalized against as a white person to display any vulnerability mm-hmm. or weakness. So getting in touch with the ways I'm marginalized, but then also de straight white cis heading my personal relationships as my personal friendship community has grown more inclusive my life has just improved and improved and improved and improved um, as I find my own liberation among the liberation of those around me Um, I like being able to share my feelings more openly I like being able to dance unselfconsciously I like being able to hear and connect with the stories of people from marginalized and increasingly marginalized identities and not react with fear and shame, but instead with genuine empathy and have that empathy provoke me into meaningful action. It's a better way Mm. to live. And my hope is in my work with white audiences to just um, help them have their own awakening of how the systems that we think are great because we have like variable rate mortgages and 401ks (laughs) is just a really complicated jail that locks us out Mm. of true living. Mm. Man, bro. Thank you so much for sharing that. Like that, that was so meaningful and so impactful. And it sounds like what I think is, is really fascinating is that it sounds like your journey towards empathizing with people of color has liberated you as well in in ways that are beyond race and ethnicity and just allowed you some freedom um, that you would not have ever had had you not taken this sort of probably at times painful journey into self-examination around areas where you yourself were an unconscious white supremacist. 
And uh, that's, and, that's amazing. And knowing that that work is for the rest of my life, because today, Corey, what I know is there are still places in my life that I'm an unconscious white supremacist. Mm-hmm. And yeah. doing the work of continuously interrogating that and having the emotional resilience to meaningfully accept critique from friends of color and people of color who point those things out to me, if I'm not willing to do that, if I view the work as done, I cannot do the work. Man. Wow. Mike, thanks so, so much for coming on the podcast, my friend. This has been such a great conversation. Uh, I, I think helpful in so many ways, helpful in ways that I didn't even anticipate, you know, some of the places we go in this conversation. And I'm so glad that they went that way. I hope that people listening hear themselves in your story. Uh, when does the book come out? Because I, I want I want to make sure that I get a copy for sure. And that any of the listeners. April 28th. April 28th. But we'll also, if you'd like, Corey, I can I can mail you an advanced copy. For sure, uh, I would and like. We can we can connect on that. <laughs> and then I also I I don't mean to ask you this publicly, so you can edit out if this feels uh, intrusive in any way. Um, but I'd love to flip the the dynamic here and have this conversation on my show, but where I ask you questions. Uh, oh, yeah. So if you'd be willing to come on as a guest of Ask Science Mike, I would enjoy that very much. Absolutely, man. Yeah, let's let's set it up. I'm I'm absolutely down to do it. Uh, I'd love to continue to. Right have this dialogue for it's, it's been enriching to me. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm down for sure. Great. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll reach out and, and get that on the calendar. Well, yes, sir. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. I really hope you guys could hear like the emotion uh, in that conversation. There were, there were moments listening to my talk where I was just very moved by how much he was moved and especially when he was talking about um, his experience with his friend in school and, and as he began to talk about his, the feeling of obligation that he has to not be a bystander when it comes to issues of race, I just thought that was just amazing. And as you can tell from the title of this episode, um, I completely agree with him and the chorus of other voices who have been saying for some time that whiteness is awful. Whiteness is a disease and a plague that harms all of us. So if you are a person, and this is not just limited to people with pale skin, if you are a person who has benefited from, participated in whiteness, and you are listening to this this uh, episode, listen, um, it's not good for society. It is a hindrance to the just society that we are trying to create. The one that we're contending for, whiteness is one of the things that is directly opposed to the kind of world that we want to create for our children and their children. So I want to thank Mike for coming on the show. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Comfort Fit for the music. Please, please, please check out the show notes of this episode to stay connected with myself and with Science Mike and see how you can be a support to both of us. And I'd like to thank you one last time this season for contending for a better world with us, one conversation at a time.